So, happy Mother's Day. Uh, one of the wonderful things about a lectionary which doesn't change in a year which always does change is that even though I am, end up preaching on more or less the same 52 selections each year, uh, each of them falls in a different, at a different moment in different circumstances, uh, and, and it's kind of like how we actually engage with the scriptures ourselves, right? You, can't, you, t you pick up the scriptures and you start to read, and it's like, oh yeah, I read this part already. But of course, you're at a different place in your life as you are, as you are making this, life, this journey through life. And it often things that you never even noticed before in a passage that you've read five or six times before will jump out at you and it's like, whoa, whoa, that's, I never even noticed that before. I never thought about it that way. So the thing that really struck me, I, I, I love the story of the Samaritan woman. And for me, it's primarily a, 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 and if you've heard any of my sermons before on this passage, which many of you have, uh, it's primarily a lesson on how to dialogue with someone with whom you disagree. Uh, but today I want to look at it at kind of sort of in this perspective of Mother's Day. It's interesting, this, this thing called Mother's Day. We, we celebrate it. We, we set aside one day of the year to celebrate those in our midst who have become mothers. Uh, and then, of course, I think it's kind of perhaps a reflection of the state of our society that even this obvious motherhood issue ends up being something we can't quite all agree on. It's like, well, should we really make a big deal about Mother's Day? What about all the people who, women who want to be mothers and who aren't able to become mothers on whatever else? And, you know, okay, that's fair enough. I, I do appreciate that our society is compassionate and wants to take into consideration things like this. But I would say, no, wait a second. There is something about being a mother, about going through that process that is unique, that is a gift from God, and that is to be celebrated and honored and lifted up and exalted, even when our mothers are not perfect. Uh, perhaps my favorite social media post on this subject was from somebody, an, an older lady, her mother had passed away, and she had had a, a, a rocky relationship with her mother. And she, she posted uh, that uh, a little bit just about that struggle, about her, her trying to come to terms with her relationship with her mother. And, and what I really appreciated about the post was that she basically said she had come to the realization that her mother had kind of the world's smallest toolkit to draw on for being a mother, just because of her own background and upbringing. And that given that, she kind of, you know, she, didn't, she obviously didn't necessarily appreciate some of her mother's shortcomings and failings, but she could understand and, and, and in that respect, uh, honor her mother. Uh, and, and as human beings, we need ideals. Uh, we, we need something to strive for. Uh, and, the, um, and, and having wonderful fathers and wonderful mothers is great if God blesses you with them. But he doesn't always. And then we're stuck with, okay, well, this is the person that I have a relationship with. This is the person that God gave me to. Uh, how do I deal with this? And that's part of just growing up and, and trying to come to terms with who God has made us to be, who the circumstances in which God has put us. 
uh, figuring out how to honor our father and mother, even when we recognize their imperfections and flaws and failings. Um, and you know, to what extent can we do so? Uh, and I think one of the things that this reveals or unpacks, if you will, is our relationship as Christians to one another as flawed human beings. Uh, because on the one hand, yeah, we kind of almost need these ideals in order to understand, say, if, if it, it becomes an obstacle and a barrier to some extent, if we have had, say, a, a not so great father to understand the fatherhood of God, because we, we kind of understand that by analogy. And if, if uh, the, analogy, the main analogy that we have is kind of broken, then it, it just adds an extra layer of challenge. But I would say we can also flip that and reverse that. Because we can also understand, wait, we do have an ideal father in God. God is our father. He is the one from whom we derive our very existence uh, and who provides for our every need. Uh, and, and so uh, as we begin to wrestle and grapple with the theological reality of God, we begin to understand father. Similarly, in the church, we would look at, we would look to some extent to Mary as our mother. If Christ is the firstborn among many brethren, then who would our mother be? Well, that would be, and we're adopted children, Mary is, is, is our mother. So we do have these ideals. Okay, so we've got ideals. We recognize the brokenness. How do we deal then with, uh, so, and, and we kind of are, there are certain brokennesses that we're forced to just deal with because we're the children of our parents. Uh, how do we deal with the kind of random brokenness that we, that we encounter. And that I would say is, this is what we see here in the story of Jesus and the woman at the well. You have Jesus and his disciples going through Samaria. Uh, the disciple, uh, Jesus sits down at a well and he uh, is just, just sitting there. Uh, it's, it's the heat of the day. The disciples go on to go into the village nearby Sychar and, and try and get some food. Uh, and bring it back to Jesus. They're, they're intending to bring it back to Jesus. And while they're gone, this woman comes to the well in the heat of the day, all by herself. This is not normal. If you are, uh, uh, it was the, nor, normally the woman's job at that in those days to draw the water, uh, but they would normally go and do it together as a group, as women often do. And, and, and they would do it in the cool of the morning not in the heat of the day, at the noon, at noonday. So this woman coming in the heat of the day by herself to draw water is already, some, there's, some, there's something clearly wrong here. And yet, what's Jesus' response? Well, his response is fascinating because on the one hand, Jewish men generally didn't talk to women that much. Um, and they definitely wouldn't have talked to a Samaritan woman. But Jesus, what does he do? He says to her, can you give me something to drink? And I, th I think that's an, uh, an amazing opening, especially in light of kind of motherhood. On the one hand, we have a general responsibility to hospitality. All Orthodox Christians do. All Christians do. And uh, kind of it's the tradition going back, you know, generation upon generation. Certainly was there in Jesus' time. Uh, but there's, if you, if you listen to the marriage service, which we'll have an opportunity to do in a couple of days, um, 
the the um, the the marriage service very clearly makes it uh, presents as a responsibility as even a gift from God to the married couple. We ask for him to bless them with all sorts of physical blessings so that they can share those blessings. The woman, as we know, spoiler alert, uh, uh, who has come to the well is a social outcast. She, ha if anyone has kind of failed at motherhood, it's this woman. And so Jesus, in his very opening, gives her an opportunity to do to take on one aspect of that, the aspect of hospitality, and asks her for a drink. And she, of course, is surprised that he's talking to her, and so she says, uh, she says to him, uh, "Sir, uh, or." How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? She's just like calling out. She's obviously, you can kind of get a sense of the character here. She's just kind of blunt, uh, perhaps. And it's like, what, what are you doing talking to me, even? Uh, and, and Jesus answers and says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman says to him, sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then are you going to give this, get this living water? Again, I love that, just sort of real, just down to earth, like, you can't give me any water. You don't have anything to draw with. What are you talking about? Are you greater, she says, than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? <clears throat> this is a little poke here, because, of course, the Samaritans were the people who, uh, after the northern tribes were brought into captivity, then the land was empty. Uh, other people were brought in and, and they, they kind of intermingled, intermarried. They had kind of a, uh, a very stripped down version of uh, a Judaism because uh, lions were coming in and starting to eat them. And they were like, oh, well, we better find out about the God of this place. And so they found a Jewish uh, priest uh, or, uh, to, to teach them. Uh, and they kind of said, okay, well, here, here it is. And they had this kind of what the Jews would have seen as a bastardized version of Judaism. Uh, it, it's, it's cut down and only recognized the first five books of Moses. They worshipped in the wrong place. They didn't worship Jerusalem. They worshipped on, on Mount Gerizim. Uh, and, and there was this really bad blood between them. And the Jews would not have understood Jacob as the fathers of the Samaritans. Not, not legit, anyhow. <laughs> and uh, So it's, it's a poke. Like, okay, well, are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us this well and drank, from, uh, and drank from it himself? Jesus doesn't engage. So, uh, again, I, I, just, I just love this whole conversation for how amazingly um, gentle our Lord is, while at the same time being absolutely firm on the things that he needs to be firm on. And things that you wouldn't necessarily expect. It's like, cause so here, here's a, a big religious degree, disagreement. What, how are you going to deal with this? He doesn't engage. He says, to, rather instead, whoever drinks this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Oh, that sounds great. 
The woman says, sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So she's actually ready at this point. She's ready to come in. And, I, I, and it's fascinating to me that it's at this point, Jesus' response to her is, go call your husband and come here. She's ready. She's ready to actually just receive whatever teachings, whatever, whatever instruction, whatever Jesus is able to give her. And he doesn't just give it to her. Instead, he forces her to confront the basic problem that is why she's here in the noonday sun, drawing water by herself from the well. Why she's a moral, social outcast. He doesn't condemn her. He doesn't say, oh, you're, but no, you couldn't possibly qualify because you're a terrible person. Uh, he doesn't even go into any of the details. He just says, go call your husband and come here. This forces her to, uh, to, to deal with this, and she doesn't. <laughs> Again, I, I just love this. It's so blunt, so, so simple. She says, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you're right. You've well said, I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. <laughs> so, like, he knows everything about her. He's now just revealed that to her. Uh, and, and now she really has to deal with it. Except she really doesn't want to deal with it. So she says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and the you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place you ought to worship. Like, how, how, do, I, how do I get out of this? Uh, I know, religious, controversial conversation. That will totally distract him. <laughs> and in, now Jesus actually does engage. But not in the way that you might expect. He doesn't say, no, no, you're wrong. You have to worship in Jerusalem. Mount Gerizim is not the place to worship. No, although he does essentially say that, but that's not his starting point. He says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So, yeah, the big, the big problem between the, the uh, well, the kind of, if you had to point, there was lots of problems, but, but the biggest one was, was where to worship. You worship on Mount Gerizim, uh, which now is destroyed because the Jews had gone and destroyed that temple, which didn't exactly make for good relationships with the Samaritans, uh, or in Jerusalem. And, and uh, Jesus says, no, things are changing. This is a pivotal moment. God is spirit, and he is seeking people to worship him in spirit and in truth. The hour is coming, and now is when those who seek the Father must worship him in spirit and in truth. We won't worship in Jerusalem, won't worship in Mount Gerizim. Rather, we will worship everywhere. This is one of those little bits sprinkled throughout all the four Gospels where Jesus is kind of telegraphing uh, that, that the, uh, the, what is coming is salvation for everyone. 
And this woman, this woman who's had five husbands and is now living with a guy who is not her husband, is the first candidate amongst the Samaritans. She says to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And it's fascinating again to me that Jesus says to her far more directly what he never actually said that directly to any of the Jews. He says, I who speak to you am he. He says very clearly to her. So here we have this social outcast, this pariah, who can't even draw water with the rest of the women in the village because they're not sure whether it will be their husband that he, she's sleeping with next. But Christ doesn't engage with her as that pariah. He doesn't engage with her as a Samaritan. He doesn't in, even engage with her as a woman. He engages with her as a human being, made in the image of God, worthy of salvation, worthy of the truth. He doesn't mince words when it comes to her struggle to be an authentic human being. He knows that she has this struggle. He knows that she has failed this struggle. But he, she, he, even as he knows all about her brokenness, he doesn't see that as disqualifying her or as writing as, as something that means that there's no possibility that she can ever be saved. No, this salvation that is of the Jews is for all of humankind in our brokenness, in our fallenness. But the one prerequisite is simply we have to recognize and acknowledge that brokenness and that fallenness. We have to recognize that and repent. And as we do so, we are ultimately worshiping God in spirit and in truth. We, there is no other way to worship God. You have to... God is truth. The only way to actually be in communion with God is to bring our lives into line with that truth. God is spirit. The only way to do that is to be men and women of, of integrity to bring our spirits humbly in all their brokenness to God, asking him for forgiveness and for healing so that we can be made whole again. And then the disciples come and they're like, why, why is he talking with this woman? <laughs> but then the, the, they're too, like, it's too socially awkward to ask the question, well, <laughs> why are you talking with her? Um, meanwhile, the woman just jumps up, leaves her water pot there at the well and runs into the city and says, come see a man who told me everything that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? I love that too. It's like, again, all throughout the gospels, belief and the struggle to belief is Central is like a, a central theme. Jesus has just told her, I am the Messiah. And she's running into the village and saying, well, basically her experience. This guy told me everything that I ever did. And then the question, could he be the Christ? She doesn't know yet. She kind of thinks he probably is. But she's not 100% convinced yet. And the disciples, uh, meantime, are like, Okay, here, we've got you some food. 
eat. And Jesus says, I have food that you don't know anything about. And they're like, oh, somebody brought me food while we were away? Uh, okay. Uh, uh, and he recognizes. They don't get it. And so, and so he says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. And I can just imagine at this point the disciples looking up and seeing a whole crowd of Samaritans coming towards them. Not necessarily the harvest that they would, that they would have been expecting. And yet, this is what was ready. We, we don't know at what point in this season we are in terms of our harvest. But we do know that we have to be ready. We have to be ready to harvest whatever God sends our way. And, and, and then the, the, the Samaritans, many of them actually end up believing because of the word of the woman. Which is like that testimony is pretty powerful. What, like you know everything about her, told her all that, and 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 they believed her. But then they actually invite Jesus to come into their village and listen to him. And then uh, the the many more believed because of Jesus' own word. And they say to the woman, "Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we have we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ." the savior of the world. Christianity is at its heart experiential. We know as followers of Jesus Christ that we are broken, that we are flawed, that we live in a world that is broken and that is flawed. But at the same time, we know that there is something more, that there is goodness in the world and it's worth fighting for. And that this is what we are called to. This is what we were made for. And so we engage on the one hand with that brokenness. We celebrate all those who do actually manage to, by the grace of God, move to some degree or another, out of that brokenness. As Paul says, note those, in his, in his letter, uh, uh, one of his letters, uh, note those who walk according to the pattern of life that we live and honor them. We need these heroes in our lives, these real-world heroes who manifest to us that God has not abandoned us, his children that the grace of God is still at work among us, that the love of God is still manifest among us. And as we honor our mothers in all their loving self-sacrifice and all their brokenness, as we honor our fathers, likewise, in, the, in that manner, as we honor every single person that we come into contact with in like manner, so we are followers of Jesus Christ our Savior and the Savior of the world, to his glory, the glory of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit, now and ever and unto ages of ages.